Listener Production. Automotive commentator and journalist Greg Rust, and this is Rusty's Garage. For this episode, I'm in the listener studio, so I had actually hoped to be chatting to our guest in person, but it's GP week in Melbourne, and he's about a six to seven hour drive away, unfortunately, and I just can't make the planets align. He's been good enough to talk to us from his place where he's escaped the world of Formula One for the farm. Malcolm Osler actually started out as a driver. He's been back at it in recent years, picking up some Australian titles, which we'll talk about. Armed with a degree in mechanical engineering, his talent in this area was quickly spotted, when he was a bit younger, while trying to take the next step in his racing career in England. He transitioned to working on the other side of the pit wall and made quite an impact. He played a significant part in Reynard's success in various classes on the way to F1 and led the design of an IndyCar project that would net titles and Indy 500 wins on the way. There were stints in the formative years of BAR and with Jaguar as well in F1. You may recall that for a time, Lee Diffie, Billy Woods and I worked with Malcolm's brother, Mark, on TEN's coverage of supercars. They were golden years of broadcasting for us. We'll reminisce about some race cars that have Malcolm's engineering DNA embedded in them and a few named drivers he worked with too. And the fun he's now having on YouTube sharing his garage creations in a set of trademark thongs. If you're into motorbikes, you will not believe what he's been working on. Here we have possibly the world's longest motorbike fuel tank. Here's a little tip for fabricators. We begin with post-F1 life and what he's been up to nowadays. You couldn't be more removed from the GP pit lane, and he is loving it. I'm down on the far south coast, almost in the, in the little corner of New South Wales, almost in Victoria. And what are you doing with yourself these days? We know we're going to talk a little bit about your uh, hill climb success later in the podcast, but what have you been doing with yourself? Um, so I guess same as I was doing when I was a teenager, mucking around in the shed. And loving it. Yeah, I, I like making things. I always have making things and fixing things and improving things, and uh, get a great lot of great deal of enjoyment from it. And keeping fit, a little bit of travelling, a bit of cycling, I gather. I got this bunch of blokes uh, assembled roughly around a, some guys I went to uni with, and uh, we did a trip six or eight years ago from Launceston down to Hobart down the east coast, which is a be- beautiful ride um, over sort of five days, just going from pub to pub basically, <laughs> and and it's, that's turned into a yearly, and it's now a dozen people. Uh, we sort of cap it at a dozen because you end up with um, logistics go crazy. But we've just done five days up in the mountains to the west of here, up around Cooma, Adam Innovie, Mount Selwyn, Burridale, Nimitabell and back down here again. So we five, five old blokes with grey hair, some of them on e-bikes. I think we rode 480 k's or something in five days and climbed 6.4 kilometres, which is, I think that's higher than Everest Base Camp. It's a fair old slog. Everest Base Camp is 5.5, five, so you are right. Yeah. Is it? Okay, there you, you go. Now... You might have checked out of, of um, Formula One or, or um, you know, motorsport at a, in an elite sense, but you have that competitive side still, which I which I like. If we look through the Australian record books, what is it? Australian Hill Climb Champion. And what are you now? You're, are you five time? Am I right? Yeah, five times. I, I, had a, I missed a year over in Adelaide. Um, so five times. But I, but that, I last won at a Bathurst, that the absolute pinnacle of my hill climbing 
career was winning at Bathurst Mountain Strait, my little homemade car with a motorbike engine. Unreal. Against, uh, against the Goulds, you know, the car that's won 10 British Hill Climb Championships. And of all places, I shouldn't beat him there, but I got him by two hundredths of a second. I love it. And that's the last time I drove the car. I crossed the finish line and put it away and sold it. And, and that was my fifth championship. It was at Bathurst. It was televised. It was unreal. Had my family there. So uh, great time to, to dip out, really. And so are you saying that you won't do any more hill climbing? You've ticked that box now? I've got, I've got a little um, shits and giggles car. I built this Goggum Build Up thing. Um, which is a hill climb car, but it's not competitive. So it's just a, I, I was really for this for the sake of building it rather than trying to go out and do anything with it. But um, I've got that to play with, but nothing serious. No, I, I've sort of built the ultimate car, and now I've sold it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go there again. Okay, we can talk about that ultimate car in a second. Firstly, you've touched on places you compete when it comes to hill climbing. I mean, I love the fact that you. I think, correct me if I'm wrong here, Mount Panorama. You run the re- reverse direction up the mountain, don't you? Which is which is pretty cool. You do both. You, so mm-hmm. you, um, you start outside the, the clubhouse, the light, light car club clubhouse, right. yep. which is probably 100, 200 metres down Conrad Strait from Forest Elbow yep. and go up, go up there the wrong way, which is, which is pretty hectic. Um, but the best bit of track probably in Australia is, um, is the Mountain Strait hook line, which is just, you start at the hump on Mountain Strait. Excellent. And uh, first, second, fourth, fourth, sixth, by the time you get to turn one, as we have it, I actually went through there on the last run in fifth, which gives you an idea of how fast these cars are. What sort of number? What kind of speed? I don't know quite there, but it's pretty flipping quick. Um, I'll bet. And then uh, fourth gear through the cutting and fifth gear over the top and going, going across the finish line just before the top of the top, top, top of the hill. All the shift lights are on in, uh, oh, in sixth awesome. gear, which is 245 clicks. And we did a little bit of um, data analysis because um, Scotty McLaughlin was on pole that year in his Mustang. And if if he went past me doing two hundred, as if he went past me doing two hundred and thirty kilometres an hour in sixth gear, when I dropped the clutch, um, I'd catch him by the top of the hill. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Fast cars, rapid. Yeah, absolutely mm. rapid. Uh, I mean, there's there's some unique venues for hill climbing in this um, in this country. I mean, back in the day, there was actually even a a, a cool one at Amaru Park. I'm not, I'm not sure if you actually ever got to compete at that because it's long gone now. It's it's um, it's it's housing and stuff. But in that Amaru Park complex in Sydney's northwest, there was a, a hill climb there back in the day. They do have some of their own unique venues as well, don't they? Yeah, I, I, I did ride a push bike down the hill at did Amaru you? Park when I was about 14 <laughs> years old. <laughs> We had a bit of a bit of a search there, and uh, before getting chucked out by the security guard. Yep. Um, but uh, no, it was Silverdale was very popular out in the west of Sydney, out out near Camden somewhere, and Amaru Park. But there, there are still there, there are more. I think um, New South Wales is a sort of mecca for hill climbing in terms of tracks. There are about eight tracks in New South Wales, and they're all quite different. Very cool. You talked before about the car that's ultimately gone to to Canada and the engineering. Uh, touches or input that you've you've had on that car along the way. Don't give away any secrets, but uh, what are the unique demands from an engineering perspective when you when you're building a car like that? And how do you get that little extra tenth of a second? You know, maybe on arrival, not just in a driving sense. There, there are no secrets left at this stage of my career. <laughs> Good. It's, it's all. It's all. And just ask. Um, uh, well, very light car with as much power as you can cram in there. Bearing in mind the weight is the cru- crucial thing. And, and as much downforce as you can, well, as sufficient downforce you could crank on there, bearing in mind it's all guesswork, no wind tunnel testing. Okay. So as far as the aero setup was concerned, it was just the basic stuff that I know works, which, you know, if you could, you could refine it and develop it. But um, when you've got open slather and you can build a tunnel car and put really wide, uh, wide span wings on it 
and uh, and go crazy with the front wing in front of the front wheels and this sort of thing. It's just things you know work, and, and it worked exceptionally well. The car, that cuddle car had no vices. It did everything you wanted to do exactly when you asked it to. It was fantastic over bumps, no understeer, no oversteer. I mean, obviously, it used to oversteer occasionally when, when, you, when you used the 400 horsepower excessively, but um, no, just stuck. It's an amazing thing. Crazy. 300 kilos on, on Pirelli tyres for the last event. They're a little bit lighter than the Avons. So it's just under 300 kilos and um, a good 400 horsepower. Pretty exciting. Can we, can we touch a little bit on Formula One? Do you, do you still watch it and have you, you know, been across the, the new regs for 2022 and what do you think of the new cars? Um, that's probably a good thing. Uh, I, I do uh, keep in touch with it. I just look at the F1 website, nothing else. Um, no podcasts or further reading. And, I, and to be honest, I only read probably one in 10 articles on there because most of it's journalist opinions and stuff, which are not really much value. Okay. But, uh, nothing, nothing personal, Greg. <laughs> not at but, all, not at all. <laughs> and some technical aspects, you know, some... Uh, anyway, but um, no, I, I, it's, it's great, isn't it, Formula 1? It's probably the only thing I do follow, to be honest. Yep. And you think the new rigs uh, uh, from, a, I mean, their whole overarching... Uh, "Quote unquote entertainment thing was to create better racing. Do you feel it's we're only a couple of races in as you and I talk? Do you feel like it's got the ingredients to do, to deliver that? Perhaps it's it seems to be better. But to be fair, like when there's a good race on, you know, last year there was a good race on, wasn't it? They were yeah, exactly. the, Lewis Hamilton trying to get past Perez in the last race. He made it last three or four, I don't know, two or three, four laps side by side. You know, the cars weren't actually that bad, to be honest. And to say they're better now, I'm sure they are." But how much difference it makes! It unfortunately it seems to be dominated by the the rather out of uh, contrived DRS thing hanging off the back of the car that back of the car. makes it a lay down mazer when you want to go past it, like NASCAR. You just sort of line them up and cruise by. Yeah. Can I rewind the clock um, a little bit to early life for you? I'm sure people would be be interested in that. For memory, you grew up in Sydney. Your brother Mark, uh, in later years, would commentate supercars with Lee Diffie and I and Billy Woods and so on. Just keep. Give people, if you can, Malcolm, a sense of the connection to cars and motorsport for you at a, at a young age and how you were perhaps drawn to it, your earliest recollections of it. I suppose it goes beyond further back than my earliest recollections because things, things my parents told me. Yep. But um, when, I, when I was I actually lived in Bathurst for a couple of years when I was a kid and uh, yep. went, to, went to Bathurst and watched the Easter races on my dad's shoulders and was absolutely mesmerised by the whole business. But my, one of my earliest words was lawn which was when uh, someone in the neighbourhood had started a lawnmower, I knew what it was, and I'd look up and go, lawn. Which, <laughs> it had a, had a motor in it, ideally a two-stroke, you know. Yep. Um, and just, just a dedicated petrol head, you know. I, I remember being at primary school and finding a book in the library about how a two-stroke engine worked, and I just thought I'd found a goldmine. I said, look at this. This is what goes on. Um, and just, you know, re- reading everything you get your hands on, which wasn't much in those days, and, uh, and making stuff, you know, learning, learning hands-on with mini bikes and go-karts and... Modified road cars and whatever was, you know, whatever I could dream up, really. Terrific. What was the first road car? How'd you pay for that? How'd you get your hands on that? It was, uh, it was $50. Um, broke down the road, owned it. Uh, Austin Lancer um, with a broken axle. And I, so I, I pushed it home, I suppose, and um, went, there was, there was a upside down one in the bush somewhere. So I went and pulled an axle out of that and put it in mine. And then I had a, a working Austin Lancer. Um, and this thing, gosh, it was dreadful. It was just the epitome <laughs> of what the Palmers were exporting around the world in the 50s. It just had terrible suspension, terrible brakes, horrible gearbox, horrible engine. It, it was a shocking thing. Um, so that, that got flicked on and had a Mini then, which I rescued. It was on its way to a demolition derby. Was it? Um, so uh, it turned that back into a road car and uh, had a broken piston, but that easily fixed. 
And then an Alpha, my third car when I was 18 was an Alpha Julia Super. Oh, cool. Beautiful little four-door Alpha. And I still don't know why I sold that. It was such a gorgeous <laughs> thing. Um, but I used to have four or five road cars a year, just keep buying sports cars and tidying them up and flicking them on. Nice. You, correct me if I have um, not got the um, the title correct, but from what I can remember, you went to university at UTS or University of Technology Sydney, Absolutely is that right? right yeah. At mechanical engineering with, with honours. Did you do a paper that was around cars and motor racing or something along those lines? What did you What did you do in, in the study in that regard? I was, I was naturally obviously led in that in that uh, direction. My, uh, my final year thesis was running a, uh, another one of those shitty Austin. Can I say shitty? Yes, you can. Of course <laughs> you can. <laughs> oh, it was an, uh, they had an Austin 1800 engine and a dyno downstairs in the lab. Uh, the UTS is funny because they'd, they'd originally planned to have more of those towers and they built the foundations sort of 10 storeys underground and, and then ran out of money to build the towers. So they, they ended up 10 storeys underground and three above. It was quite a strange setup. But uh, down in the basement, there was a dyno with this, BMC engine, and we um, there was a project available, thesis available to run it on ethanol, as as they do, you know, we're doing running engines and ethanol in Brazilian places, yep. and just go through the thermodynamics of it all and getting it to work, which was funny because my my uh, then sort of forty years later ended up with my little hill climb car running on E eighty five and loving it. Terrific. Back in those days, were you doing sort of midnight motor stuff and running the dyno at late hours after normal university and things, or what? Were, no, what, it, was all, what? it was all. You need. I don't know if you needed a technician around, but no, it was all done in in civilized hours. But I, I did a um, I did a sandwich course, Greg, which was um, six months study and six months work. I didn't want to be a uni student when I finished school. I wanted to go out in the workforce and be doing stuff. Okay. And the reason I went to UTS rather than Sydney or New South Uni was um, they had this sandwich course where you could work six months and go out into the workforce. So, so tell us more about that. When you what were you working and what did you what were you getting into at that stage? Uh, well, six months study and then. Um, I'd, I'd met Peter Jansen. I introduced myself to Peter Jansen when... Captain. Yeah, the captain. Um, mate of mine and myself, uh, both petrol heads, obviously went down to, to I think, to Phillip Island and called there a couple of race meetings at the end of the year after our HSC. And we used to draw cars. We used to, you know, do, do 50 drawings a week of, of racing cars. Yep. <clears throat> and uh, well, in the week between the races, we gave Jansen a call and said, we've got these drawings of your car. We'd like to see him. He said, yeah, boys, come on up and... Went and visited him in mid-afternoon in the in the garden there at the Windsor Hotel, the penthouse suite, and yep. Jansen's walking around in a bloody dressing gown because he's just got out of bed with some woman. You've painted a great picture of, of him. Keep going, yes. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and bottles of Windsor Brutes and a flat champagne. Here you go, boys. And he liked the drawings. He said, what are you up to? And I uh, said, so we're going to go and camp out. At, you know, we're here for a week. And I camp out at call off the race. He said, no, don't go and... Don't, don't go and Go hang out of that horrible shithole, as you call it. Stay here, okay. You know, so so then he headed off somewhere, and there we were, the two two eighteen year old kids in charge of the penthouse suite of the Windsor Hotel with bottles of champagne and classic. And yeah, that was that was the end of um, end of seventy six, I suppose. Yep. Um, and went back over Christmas and worked for him for a few weeks, and then when I the time came to do my first stint of appropriate industrial experience, I ended up driving double-decker buses around Melbourne for Jansen. Did you? <laughs> it was great fun, great fun, great fun. Good stuff. Somewhere here, and, and maybe in the ensuing few years, stuff with Formula Ford starts for you. Well, probably I, I maybe have jumped the, the gun a little bit because you mentioned dirt bikes and things before. What was the first proper motorsport experience for you? What was the first racing thing that you got your teeth into? It, it was Formula Ford. I did, I did nothing because... Um, 
didn't have the you know didn't have at, at the time you couldn't uh, you couldn't race a cart in those mm. days until you had a car license. So that was that was off the off the agenda. I couldn't agenda, afford it anyway. Yeah. Um, and then uh, by the time I had a car license, I was driving a car around, yep. you know, mucking about. But um, and I, I would have liked to have uh, raced a Formula Ford, <clears throat> but I, I could afford to buy a car, but I couldn't afford to run it. Couldn't afford okay. a trailer or tires or you know engine rebuilds. So that's that's just crazy. Um, but then I had I had through actually through the drawings again. I got to be working with Harry Galloway. Building, um, building one of his, or building his last from Atlantic for Andrew Medici. Yep. Uh, in nineteen, I used to drive from Warunga down to Moorback twice a week in the night and spend a couple of hours in Harry's shed making stuff and drive home again. Oh, awesome. that got me involved with a guy called Mike Stack, um, who I helped with his his Formula Two car in nineteen eighty. Uh, and then, uh, so I was, I was sort of around racing cars, and this guy Ed Vuso, guy who was at school a couple of years, a couple of years above me, or one or two. Um, had a Formula Four which he'd been running, and he it was sort of too much uh, work on his own um, to do it. Also, he ended up hiring it out to to this guy John McGinn, drove it a little bit in '82, I think, and won a race and set a lap record, and didn't want to carry on. And Ed asked me if I knew anybody who would be interested in hiring the drive, and I it didn't occur to me at the time, but I guess he was asking me if I'd like to, <laughs> and I because I, 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 he must have thought I was sensible or something. It turned out not to be, but. Um, I chewed on it for a couple of days and said, "Yeah, you know, it was it was six thousand dollars. It was nothing um, for a for a well sorted car with you know Steve Wiesner engines and all the good kit." Um, so we went Formula Ford racing and uh, awesome. went out to Amory Park, did thirteen laps, and smashed the thing up. <laughs> and Ed stood by me through that. We built built the car again. I ended up doing my observed license test, test in my XJ six around Iron Park. Okay, the tail out all over the place, no brakes. Um, but then we had a had a phenomenal year with it in 1983 because my, my first race was was at Sandown, the first first race of the well, it was the morning race if you like. Yep. Uh, they used to have a morning race and, and the afternoon race, and then I met the, the I was in sixth sixth or seventh place, and I my first person I ever, ever overtook was Thomas Mazera in his Fantastic. in his old thing uh, down yep. in Dandenong Road, um, and carried on from there. And by the time we got to Surfers, I, I don't know if this is too much detail, but. Um, I was reasonably on the pace, but you know, obviously very inexperienced. Not only you know driving the car, but I'd never competed in anything. Really, I never competed in motocross or karting or anything else. So learning the ropes there. But I um, we're up at Surface Paradise, which is wonderful high speed track. It's only third and fourth gear in a Formula Ford. Phenomenal mm. place. And they used to mix us up um, due to due to lack of numbers. They used to we used to qualify with the Formula Two cars. And I was coming around the S's onto the straight, and I saw this guy behind me. I thought, well. There's no point letting him pass here. So I, I got in his way, took on the straight and got this massive tail off this Formula 2 car. <laughs> Howling. It was really funny, actually, having run with Formula 4s, you're pulling behind a Formula 2 car. You can't see anything. You're pull, like you're pulling behind a house, big wide wheels and a wing and everything else. Yeah. But he towed me down the straight and headed off around the sort of flat corner under the bridge there. But he was obviously a bit timid because so, I caught him up again around there and he towed me down the next straight as well. <laughs> and I, so I ended up on pole, which was a bit of a shock. And, uh, and then uh, won the race. Won the race. So I, I won the third round of the championship, then the fourth round at uh, Amaru Park and a few other good – I ended up, you know, Bruce Connolly's a better driver than me he, he, and quite experienced. He won, the, he won the championship and I came second and that all looked pretty good. So we thought we'd have another crack at it in 84 and um, seal the deal sort of thing, drive it to Europe. But uh, I, by that stage I was sort of a bit too confident and trying a bit hard and but halfway through the series hadn't scored a single point and I was you – know, I crashed the car all over the place and – just exhausted. I'd run out of money. I'd run out of the will to live. It's just like <laughs> just oh, ruined. Brutal. So I packed it in and started saving money to go to Europe at the end of the year. 
I just want to underscore that 83 championship, if I can, for listeners. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong here. Three round wins. As you rightly point out, you ran um, second in the championship. Um, Bruce Connolly would would win that crown. Were you in a was it a Bowen chassis? I think you ran back then. What what, what was it yeah. that you were running? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bowen. I mean, Bowen that's P6. very imp- very impressive considering no motorsport experience. Really. Yeah, weird, really. Um, incredible, really. But um, you know, the, the, we had the best engine. I don't know how much Formula Ford engines vary, but we had the mm. best one, uh, which helps. And the car was very well sorted. You know, it was a proper, it was a well funded team, properly, almost professionally run outfit. Yep. And we turned up and did the testing and the, the bone was a funny thing. It was a very knife-edged bit of kit, short short wheelbase and tail heavy. But with with just the right of right little t- little tinge of understeer, you could you could get around quite quickly with it. Just hope that does, nothing goes wrong because you ended up in the bush really quickly, which is what happened quite often. This comes out after the Australian Grand Prix, and it's currently Friday after first practice one. Let's see if I predict the result right. P1, Charles Leclerc. P2, Max Verstappen. P3, Lando Norris. I wonder how wrong this was. My programmer also needs to update my pronunciations. Come on, guys. What made you decide to take the punt on on going to Europe, and how much money did you have in your back pocket for that that um, for that big move? Uh, well, I suppose I suppose going to Europe is something we all do, isn't it? Like mm. I'm sure you've been there. We sort of, it's a it's a Australian rite of passage to go and spend some time in the old art. Yep. Um, and I didn't have a plan. My, the only plan I had was to ride my push bike around Europe. I still haven't done it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Forty years later, or whatever it is. Um, no, I just uh, uh, headed off to see what was going on. Um, but I took my you know, driving suit and my helmet anyway in case an opportunity arose and probably a pair of cycling shorts. Um, and when I lobbed over there, my little little brother, Mark, who, you know, he'd yes. already teed up a job with Steve Farrell up at uh, up in Hinkley, right in the middle of, of England yep. in Leicestershire to go and work as a Formula Ford mechanic. So we, we bought a car in London. My sister was living there at the time. We bought a car and after a week or so looking around London, headed up to see Steve and he offered us both jobs. So I said, well, that'll well, do, you know, I'll hang around here with Mark and Steve, it'll be fun and... Uh, Formula, he, he had a, he's running a couple of Formula Fords, and he had a Ford two thousand that the guy was running in the in the two liter championship. So anyway, having taken that on, Steve did a deal for me to do five rounds of the Donington series, like a second string um, Formula Ford two thousand series. So you know, I, I was driving racing cars again, which is a great great thing. You know, obviously, drive a car with wings and slicks and a bit more power, but. British circuits. I never raced at Brands Hatch, but you know Alton Park and Thruxton and Castle Coombe and Silverstone. We drove around Mallory a bit. Uh, great fun, great fun. I, I, in Australia, I was on the pace, but I used to crash too much. And when I went to England, I was off the pace, but I still crashed too much. So that sort of told me that it wasn't for me really as a career. As we get to the the kind of design and engineering phase of of what you became so well known for, mate, was it um, in that role in that job? Was it almost like a bit of a bit of a barter thing you were you were working there and you know obviously you need a bit of money to live and so on but that was helping helping fund the the racing side of it while you're doing it is that how it all came together uh working for steve well yeah in that in that role or was it not connected oh it's just i just turned up and he offered me a job I, I, well, how much he paid me was irrelevant um <laughs> it was just you know just living in england and and being involved with formula ford racing over there it was it was good fun uh, it was good fun for a while but uh i i tired off it after six months or so and, Reynard uh, Racing Cars put an ad in the paper for a 
design draftsman, which I applied for and got, and that was that was the start of that road. Fantastic, and a, a, a you know a very significant um, chapter in your your work and uh, and life generally, Malcolm. So, how did that go? Did you meet Adrian? What what was the sort of interview process like? And what, you know, well, sort of funny. In in England, when you apply for a job, you put in a, a covering letter and a CV, yep. uh, and which is like a, a, a it's a one A four page with hi, this is Malcolm Oster. I come from Australia. I got an engineering degree. Can I have a job, please? And and a and one page, you know, this is where I've worked and that's all I've done. But being from Australia, I submitted a resume. I had a I had a portfolio, mate. It was <laughs> colour photos, <laughs> including including one of me sitting on the on the lawn in Bathurst with a, with a lawnmower pulled apart and a, in a nappy with a lawnmower pulled apart and a screwdriver in my hand. <laughs> hey, I've and, been at this for a while. Yeah, 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 yeah. And like turbocharged Datsuns and uh, Repco around Australia rally cars and the Formula Ford and a bit of Formula Atlantic, all sorts of stuff. So the fact that I'd uh, I could design stuff, I'd, I'd, and I, you know, we built all co- um, composite bodywork for the bow and all that sort of carry on, and reinvented a few things while I was at, uh, at, at with Steve at, Van, at uh, with the Van Diemen's. I sort of sorted out the suspension for them because it was upside down, basically. Um, okay. And uh, so I, I turned up with the, this resume went in, and Adrian looked at it and looked at the others and said, he actually said to the guy who was, in, who was doing the job placement, "This is the bloke for the job. Interview the others, but give him the job." Wow. I met Adrian briefly and we had a, had a pally chat and, yeah, started the next week. Terrific. So what was what were your first impressions of, of him and how much did you know about him at that stage and so on? Uh, well, not, not a great deal. The, um, they were sort of, Rick and Adrian were sort of the smart-ass bad guys of the pit lane to a certain extent in, in that era because they, they, they dominated Formula Ford yep. and gone into uh, Formula 3 possibly a little bit full of themselves and um, with the first carbon Formula 3 car and done, done very, you know, dominated the first, Half dozen races, um, mm. and then went off went off on holidays to Greece or something other, and took the middle of the year off. And meanwhile, Ron Turanak sorted out the problem with his. It was the first year of flat bottoms, okay. And there was a production problem with the rockers on the front of the Ralt or something. Anyway, they got the Ralt working, and the Ralt started winning races. And Adrian Rick came back from holidays, and it, was, <laughs> it, didn't, it wasn't such a rosy patch anymore. I think Guzman ended up winning the championship in a Ralt. So anyway, they they didn't have the best reputation. I think they. I shouldn't say really. They, they, their reputation on the pit lane was bullshit and stereo. Like, okay. <laughs> tell, tell, tell people anything to sell a car, sort of thing. Yep. Um, so, but I, what the hell? It's a job, you know. And Adrian, very experienced, yeah. very experienced designer, very successful. Uh, he was he was nineteen and a good driver. His nineteen seventy nine European Ford two thousand championship, and dedicated you know, much of his early life to, to you know sort of hundred hour weeks to to being mm. a racing car constructor and. And had a quite nice setup there. I mean, incredible opportunity for me. The, com- the company was only about 30 people when I joined and it was 300 when I left. Crazy. Crazy. What was the first car you worked on for then? Very first. Uh, I, I inherited, because um, the focus was on Formula 3 with Adrian and Rick and you know, trying to get, get back into the Formula 3 market. Nobody, nobody wanted to buy their cars in 86. They, they'd done well in 85 and 86. Nobody wanted them. In spite of that, Andy Wallace had one and went out and dominated and won the championship. Which championship, yeah. Cool. Yeah, um, but one of you know one of six cars running. Um, so I was I handed the Formula Fords, the Ford two thousand and the and the sixteen hundred. The 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 Ford two thousand was the when I basically the other thing eighty five when I first went there the the Formula Ford and the Formula two two thousand sorry the Formula Ford and the Formula Ford two thousand were disastrous Reynards. They were just terrible, and there were only six of them running after after two races. They were just hopeless. Um, but when and there wasn't going to be a Formula Ford for an 86, but um, Adrian looked around the stores at all the 
chassis and bell housings and bits of bodywork lying around and uprights and said, well, we better use this up. So he <laughs> cobbled a car together with a bit of this and a bit of that and, get, and put me in charge of sorting that out and getting it running and doing a bit of development work on it. And the formula for the Formula Ford, um, the, the, the 85 Formula Ford, Formula Ford 2000 championship was owned by an 84 Raynard. So they reinvented that, put the nice wheel bearing package and stuff out of the 85 car and um, turned the uh, 84 car into an 86 car. And that was a great bit of kit, just the same, just the same old car. Um, but it had to be flat bottom. So there's quite a lot of different bits of bodywork and stuff here and there. Did it become all consuming for you at this point and like cold turkey on your own driving and racing and any of that stuff? Or was it, you were just immersed in this? Oh, no, no thoughts of driving cars. Well, I did, I did when, I, when I designed my first car, I was the first one to drive it. As it were happened. you? It wasn't, there wasn't a plan, yeah. But um, what, see what happened, I, I, so I looked after the Ford, um, the Ford Formula Ford and the Formula Ford 2086, but the FIA very kindly did one of their rule changes. So for 87, you had to have the driver's feet behind the front axle line for mm-hmm. safety. Mm-hmm. And if you remember the old 84 Raynards, you sort of hung out the front like an old 82 Formula, uh, Formula 1 car, you know, sort of packaged, yep. shoved in there between the front suspension. So that car couldn't go on. So my task was to keep all that car's vehicle dynamics, weight distribution, wheelbase, geometry, all that sort of stuff, but package it so that the driver was further back. Yes. Um, and I, so I designed a car from scratch, which is an amazing opportunity. And that thing, it did, funny, they say good cars are always quick out of the box. This thing wasn't. It, we struggled to get a lot of time out of it for, for three or four outings, you know. Um, but eventually, with no changes, it went really fast. And we finished one, two, three, four, five in the first race and... Game, set and match, it was all over. We, oh, that, that car ran for three years. I think the only part we changed on it from the original design was the rear rocker beam that bent, so we took the lightning pocket out of it. And I think it won every, every race for three years in the British Formula Ford 2000 Championship until it got the, the series got replaced by the first Opel Lotus um, Raynard GM car, whatever. The first of the scourge of one-make formulas. That's immensely rewarding. Did it become then uh, that you had an involvement in various different cars in different classes? I mean, I think you raised there before about Andy Wallace, and, and wasn't it a, a triple? I think Johnny Herbert and then JJ Leto won, uh, respectively, 86 through to 88 in the yeah. in the British Formula 3, didn't they? So were you involved in, in that side of things too? Almost not at all. Okay. I, 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 I happily managed to, to skip over Formula 3. I don't like the things. Okay. Overgripped, overgripped and underpowered. For, for this is horrible falling torque curve, torque curve with the restrictor on there and bah, bah, <laughs> just terrible things. Um, but I, so I did the Ford 2000 mm-hmm. um, and uh, Adrian and John Thompson and people were doing the Formula 3 car. Um, and uh, having done the Ford 2000, Adrian got a, put a deal together and wanted to do Formula 3000. Yes. So a year on from starting in, in March on the first Formula Ford 2000, I was starting on the first Raynard. Formula 3000, 3000 so hop straight over it. People that, that follow the, the podcast or even Drive to Survive and things will know Formula 2 now. And I guess back then Formula 3000 was the, the, the tier below F1, wasn't it? It was sort of the final um, rung on the ladder, if you like, before you, you got to the, the big league there. Can, can I just, um, because you, you've talked about, uh, we've mentioned a few drivers there, who were some of the drivers you were starting to work with and did your experience as a driver and then in the crossover with design and engineering and so on, did, did that work well? Did you gel well, well with some of the drivers? I think it was very useful, having hmm. like, extremely useful. Like all, everything I did prior to getting a job as a designer, as I think, you know, even building minibikes out of lawnmowers and, and wheelbarrows and Morunga, you know, it was all learning curve and it was all useful, but having, having raced a car, 
gave you a good gave me a good uh, feel for the scale of importance of the different factors you're dealing with for the driver to go fast, which you, I don't think you can get without driving a car. You know, what's what's important to you to go fast? Um, so yeah, very useful. Very useful. Did- who were the drivers then that you were starting to come into contact with? Because sort of mid-80s, it was a bit of a legendary period for the game and the emergence of some names people will still be familiar with now. Yeah, I was, I was really lucky. I, I wrote all, all the way through to Formula 1. I wrote a crest of this wave that went through various formulas and, and, and was involved in the formula in its most healthy period. Mm. So like in, in, before one make formulas and the sort of dilution that that caused, um, if you wanted to be a serious racing driver, you went to England and raced Formula Ford 1600. So all the all the Gashos and Blundells and Karkaskis and JJs and you know everybody you care to mention was there, thrashing it out, um, and then for two thousand was the next step. So that was just as uh, vibrant. You had Marlborough sponsorship all the way through and Camel mm. and various people, uh, and then Formula Formula Three thousand you mentioned it was Formula Two, um, but when Formula One went turbo, there were all these de- beautiful DFE engines sitting around, and Bernie Eccleston invented this this new category to replace Formula 2 and use up all these DFEs. Um, and that, that Formula 3000 instead of Formula Formula 2, but that was the next step below Formula 1 um, and everybody was doing it. You know, all the well-financed Italians and um, mm. French, you know, the Elf and well, Segarek, Marlborough and Camel were into it and everybody else. It was, you know, big fields, pretty serious. So they did that while it was at its best and then in, into IndyCar when it was really... Healthy with you know, tire war going on and three, three or maybe four engine manufacturers, loads of money. You know, great time yeah. doing it, and you know, great drivers all the way through. That's the end of part one of my podcast with former F1 technical director and respected race car designer Malcolm Osler. But the good news is there's more in the garage, and it's ready for you to enjoy right now. Fire Up Part 2, when you're ready. There's insights on working with drivers like Jacques Villeneuve and the late Nicky Lauda and fellow Aussie Mark Webber. The garage project he worked on while on gardening leave from BAR, plus the wild motorcycle he's building now, just because. How he shoehorned the most unlikely engine into a bike frame. Listener.